Welcome to At The Source. I'm your host, Alex Ryder. Today's guest is someone I've admired for a while, Dr. Saliha Mahmood Ahmed. She won MasterChef in 2017 with her fusion of Indo-Persian food and a final menu which included venison shami kebab and Kashmiri-style sous vide duck breast. After winning MasterChef, she released her cookbook Kazana to great acclaim. In fact, it won OFM's Best New Cookbook of the Year in 2019 and the Summer Harvest Gourmand World Cookbook Awards in 2020 in the category Celebrity Chef in English. I actually just bought a copy myself, and although I've not cooked from it yet, let me tell you, the recipes sound and look delicious. Saliha has somehow found time in her busy schedule to have a chat with me about the Kashmiri style of cooking she grew up with, winning MasterChef and how that changed her life, and how she manages to work as a doctor cook, write recipes and raise her son all at the same time. Phew! Welcome Saliha! Let's start with your love of food, which I believe came from cooking with your mum and grandmother. Was food an important part of your childhood? I mean, food was an integral part of my childhood. Um, I mean, I have so many food memories that they practically burst out of me. Um, Sometimes I'll be cooking something or doing something and all of a sudden a a foodie memory will pop into my head or I can connect with a taste from my childhood when I eat something at my mum's house or when I, you know, see an old recipe that appear makes its appearance somewhere so yeah I mean food was such an integral part of our life um you see I'm actually from a Muslim household and uh, we don't drink alcohol and our socializing um, since childhood was always around family and the festivities were always marked by food In fact, every single occasion was marked by food as opposed to drink. So the importance of food in virtually every aspect of life was really marked for me from a very, very young age. And it's the same for my brother and the same for my sister. The only thing I have, which my brother and sister didn't have, was actually a a real desire to cook and a love for cooking. They love eating and understand the importance of food, but I'm the one who actually loves to cook. Um, So yeah, I think... I can't imagine my life to be any different. And I think if I didn't have that grounding or, and that love of food behind me, I don't think I would be the person I am today. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm the same, actually, because although I come from a, a family that does drink, um, food has always been the, the celebratory part of, of um, any big family occasion. And actually, not just celebration, but anything, really. Parties, birthdays, Christmas. So I wonder if you have any early food memories that you can tell us about, maybe your first food memory. One of my earliest food memories, and I I actually can't remember whether this food was being made for me or for my sister, because it's a little bit blurry, but we're based somewhere in Manchester. I'm quite young and it's quite cold and we're in sort of um, this old little terrace house um, and the kitchen is facing out back. And um, my grandma is standing in the kitchen because my grandma came from Pakistan to help my mum whilst she was a junior doctor. And I can remember my sister and I sitting on the staircase in the house and then creeping quietly into the kitchen and watching my grandma make food for us. And all I can remember is a blender and her putting um, big chunks of boiled potato, more butter and cream than is ever legal or appropriate to, (laughs) to, to like, you know, give a child. Salt, 
pepper and some roasted chicken into a blender and whizzing it into a puree. And then she, I, I do remember sitting and her feeding my sister. And I think I had grown out of the puree phase by that stage. But because it just tasted and sounded so delicious, well, it sounded so delicious. So I wanted to get a taste of it. And I remember being fed it um, and really enjoying it. And I remember sort of some leftover butter and potatoes and roast chicken on the side on the counter. And I remember nibbling away at it mm. whilst waiting for my mum to come through the door because, you know, as children, yes, we were very close to our grandma, but, you know, mums are mums. And, you know, we would just be, we we're in Oldham actually. And the opposite uh, opposite us was the hospital where my mum worked, Oldham General. And I remember my sister and I would, you know, sit at the window ledge waiting for her to walk across the road and come into the house and feed us. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the earliest memory I have. I think I'm a, probably about four and a half years old. That's that's the rough age where that memory comes from. I was going to ask if you if you could remember how old you were. So yeah, definitely older than needing to eat pureed foods. But wow, that sounds delicious. I think I'd quite fancy that now. <laughs> yeah, it, well, exactly. Don't you? I mean, I mean, I literally can remember the butter melting as it dropped on the pieces of hot boiled potato, you know, like it's that vivid in my mind. And we had this saying, you know, that uh, my mum always used to say, you know, I felt really comfortable leaving my kids with my mum, as in my grandmother, because she had this um, ability to make your kids really fat. So um, she, she was surprised <laughs> in the family as, you know, if you've got an unhealthy sort of weedy looking child, you know, give her to asthma and asthma will fatten them up, you know. And um, she was really good at this. She knew how to do it. She knew how to make kids chubby. And um, we used to, when we got a bit older, my parents used to love going on holidays alone. And so they used to leave my sister and I and my little brother eventually when he came along with my grandmother. And uh, I think before she went, my mum used to have a few pangs of guilt. You know, I'm leaving my kids, this, that, the other. And you won't believe she used to say to my mom and my grandma, make sure you feed them properly. You know, like, should they like this and they like that and they like this and they, you know, this one doesn't like this or whatever. And my grandmother used to just turn around and say, do you know what? Measure them on a scale before you go and measure them on a scale when you come back. And, you know, she just had this ability to feed children delicious meals and be get them excited about food because she was passionate about food herself and in the very typical way you know she was you know big busted and had a big bottom and she used to be really like chunky and chubby and <laughs> and heartwarming and give delicious hugs as well as the feed delicious food so it was all sort of like this lovely nourishing warming package of wholesome love um which came on a plate and in her arms I'd say so yeah I think that's that sounds so lovely yeah <laughs> so that's probably where the foundations of it were all laid for me to be honest you just mentioned there that your mum was a doctor and and you're a doctor and that's mm well known through your appearance on MasterChef, which we'll talk about later. Did you ever think that you'd pursue a career in food? Or did you know that you wanted to be a doctor and that actually food was going to be a hobby? Well, it's really interesting you asked this, actually, because um, I remember 
being quite academic at school. Um, I'm, it's not just me who's a doctor, actually. My mum's a doctor. My dad's a doctor. I've got two siblings who are doctors. I'm married to a doctor. My sister's married to a doctor. My uncle's a doctor. So it's like a stereotypically Asian doctor family. I think we were all genetically engineered to be that way somehow. We've you know manipulated our psychology into thinking that all we can do is be doctors. However, when I was about 14, um, I was doing GCSEs and food tech was one of my favorite subjects. I was really academic as well. And food tech was um, sort of one of these really lovely creative ways where I could be myself. And um, I remember just being so in love with food tech that I used to go in in lunch, which was just before the food tech period started and starting my cooking early so I could make something more elaborate than everybody else. And I had a te- <laughs> I know, I know. I had a teacher called Miss Finley who really supported me and she, she knew that I loved cooking and she was really like sort of inspirational for me because instead of saying, yeah, go on, go and have your lunch, don't be silly. She'd say, come on then, let me see what you're doing. I want to know what you do. Well, where did that idea come? She would have really developed me. She also pushed me towards this competition called School Chef of the Year. And uh, she used to take me to all these places to do these competitions. And I won the School Chef of the Year competition. Um, and it was a huge highlight for her. And it was a massive highlight for me as well. And then I had this thought in my head, you know, like, I'm very good at science, but do I really want to pursue science in the long run? Or, you know, could I do something with food? And this was the time where Jamie Oliver had just come on television and done his series. And, you know, um, food suddenly had a new status. I used to love watching Nigella as well. And, you know, I was constantly addicted to television programs, collecting magazine clippings, um, you know, buying all of the early food and travel magazines, reading them through and through recipes and, you know, collating old recipes from my grandparents, talking about food, going out with friends to different foodie places. It was all very atypical for a teenager. And I remember saying to my mum, I said, I wish I could just learn Spanish at university, then go to Spain and then travel the world and come back and just be freaking Nigella instead of doing A-levels. And my mum looked at me and she was like, have you lost your mind, woman? <laughs> you know, like, and she literally thought like I had lost my mind. And I think it always stuck with her that in the back of my mind, I wanted to do something in food. Although I forgot about it because I then sort of became head girl at school and the academia took over and the desire to do well in A-levels. And it all becomes, you know, very streamlined and you, you, you go into a mode, you know, get into medical school, complete medical school, get a job in London. You know, it's all very much a progression like a ladder. And I think this break and coming on to master chef was amazing. My husband put me forward for it. And um, it was when I was on maternity leave with our first baby, quite bored at home. And suddenly, I think it just reignited that love of food that I had buried away in and amongst the academia that was, you know, simmering away in my life. And I just am so, so glad that he did because it it has um, opened a brand new career up for me. Did you know that he was putting an application in for you or was it something that he said, right, I'm going to do this and then you found out and you were quite pleased? Yeah, I mean, it may sound cliche, but um, he totally did it without telling me. So naughty. I was so naughty. Well, I mean, he mentioned it. He said, oh, I've seen this application for BBC MasterChef. I think he was scrolling on like BBC News and, you know, these pop-ups come up like, you know, apply for the next series 
series, blah, blah, blah. And um, uh, he said, you know, you're all, all you do in maternity leave is think about food and cook all day. Um, you know, why don't you just apply for this and I said are you joking we have like a zero a zero year old I have to go back to work how am I meant to fit MasterChef in and actually I think at that point I probably lacked the confidence to, to go on a show like that as well and he sort of said no, no no I think you should do it I think you should do it I said no and then we left it at that and lo and behold I didn't know but he actually did the application on my behalf um behind my back and filled it in with details that he knew about me but other people obviously couldn't know and so a couple of months later, I mean, I'm talking about months, not even weeks, months later, I got a telephone call from someone at Shine TV saying, hello, like it's Ryan from Shine TV or something. And, you know, I really loved your application and the fact that you told me about your grandmother and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, somebody's been hacking. Someone knows so much personal information about me. Who have they been talking to? And I, I was literally about to put the phone down. And luckily he was there and he was like, oh no, 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 I did the older there was a lot of explaining to do afterwards believe me but yeah I'm and I think it just started this cascade they spoke to me I just spoke in a bit of shock back to them and was you know just answered some questions quite briefly they said would you like to come down to London for you know we want to, to see how what you're like in front of the camera to see if you'd like to go on the show um, but obviously it's very provisional we invite hundreds of people so don't get too excited so I said okay I made the trip down to London with the baby and my husband on his day off it was a boiling sweltering hot day um, um, I remember I had to take some food in and I had all these bags full of ice packs to keep things cool and went over there, dressed a plate in um, a street food dish called chaat and fed it to them. Um, I really enjoyed it, actually, the whole process, came out really excited and said, actually, I've changed my mind. I'd really love to do it, even if I go out on the first round. Hmm. My husband said, oh, oh, great. So it was worth coming down. I said, yeah, it was worth coming down. Let's see what happens. And then I didn't hear back from them for a long time again. So like weeks and weeks and weeks. And I remember it was like a drizzly sort of September day and we were driving around and I said, such a shame. I got quite excited about that in the end. You know, I think I would quite like to do something like that, but nothing came of it. And he said, oh, well, never mind. At least you had to go, you know, and you can always try again next year. And that same afternoon, I got a telephone call saying, we'd like you to be on the show. Wow. It's so strange how things happen like that. Honestly, it just was the way that my journey onto the show happened. Um, I just can't explain it. I wouldn't say like, it, I mean, I'd almost actually would say it was fated in a way. Like, I mean, my mum says, oh, well, I always knew you'd win it. And I think that I was just thinking, I mean, you're just being really trite. Like, no, I don't think I'd always win it. I had really bad rounds. It was really tough. She said, you know, that somehow she felt deep inside her because she knew of that depth of love for food that I have and that passion that I would have it in me to be able to get through the rounds successively. Because in actual fact, it took a lot of resilience to be able to get that through that period of filming, which I don't think people realized until right at the very end of the show. It was really hard for me um, because I was working full time at the time. Um, I was doing night shifts, day shifts in a part of my training, which is called core training, which is in medicine, probably the, the hardest part of your career. You're also doing exams at the same time. Getting time off work is really difficult. I was working in Watford General, which is a very busy district general hospital. Um, I'd be on my feet for 12 hours a day then 
go to the shop to buy ingredients, practice cooking. I have to give time to my baby, time to upholding a house, a relationship. You know, everything happened alongside filming for this big BBC MasterChef competition. And I remember you just you mentioned before we started, Alex, about how you were watching the show and you're on the episode where I went to South Africa. But would you believe that I only had a 24-hour notice to prepare my life to go to South Africa. Really? That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. No, no, I mean, it's totally crazy. I just couldn't believe it. I've got some quite basic MasterChef questions, which I think that the listeners probably want to know the answers to as well. And given that I've got the chance to ask someone, I'm going to go for it. So I have to ask... In the early stages and in the in the stages when you're cooking in the MasterChef kitchen, are the dishes cold by the time Greg and John taste them? They're absolutely stone cold, actually, Alex. I mean, they are so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're freezing. Um, and it's just the way that television has to be filmed. Unfortunately, things do go cold. So you're cooking, then you'll leave the room. Um, the place gets tidy. The cameras get reset for judging which, you know, in TV land can take quite a long time to sort out. Um, And then you come back in and one by one you're judged. Um, So yes, the food does go cold. I mean, occasionally they might heat something up. For example, you know, if you've got some sort of a meaty jus in a little pot, they might put that in the microwave for 10 seconds or something just so it doesn't come out like a solid jelly-like slot. Um, um, Or you'll notice that, you know, if there's ice cream on the plate, um, then it will always be served alongside rather than on the main plate, because otherwise it would be melted in a puddle. Um, And the ice cream is held in the in the freezer whilst we're waiting um, for filming to happen. So they do try. But of course, there's limitations, isn't there? Although, to be honest, I'd still love that job. I I feel like I could be the next MasterChef presenter. I'm (laughs) I'm convinced of it. It's... um... It's a difficult time. Uh, dream job, eh? Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I, when we used to be filming, um, the crew are amazing, by the way, on MasterChef. It's a real family sort of affair and you get to know lots of them really well. And uh, a, a lot of them would sort of come up to me like, oh, what are you making today? Oh, tell me more about it. And, you know, you tell them and they'd come, mm-hmm. oh, that sounds nice. And then um, once we got towards the finals, you know, because we started getting to know them so well, I would sort of hide some extra food in the drawer so um I'd come out and I'd say you know or I've for example in the finals I said I've, hit, I've hidden two extra panna cottas in the drawer <laughs> Brilliant. Um, where the spoons are where I was working and then they'd go and then they'd fish out the panna cottas and eat them quietly behind scenes so it was it was really fun you know really really fun oh fantastic so as a home cook it must have been absolutely terrifying that first time that you stood in a professional kitchen. And I think it was um, Sean Rankin that you and the other contestants were, were cooking under. Was there not a point when you thought, I'm, I'm a doctor, I'm a mum and I'm a home cook and oh my goodness, what on earth am I doing right now? Um, plenty of times. Um, but I mean, I... I mean, the thing is, they don't really tell you what's going to happen on the day when you go somewhere. So we didn't know we were cooking for Sean Rankin. And what you don't know about me, Alex, is that I'm quite short. Um, I'm five foot two inches tall. And for that reason, I'm always doing things to try and make myself look a bit taller. I'm also married to a, a man who's over six foot tall. So it's a requisite that I try, <laughs> wow, I know, I try and make myself look a little bit taller all the time. So I went to filming wearing a lovely dress and tights and... Um, boots with heels on them 
And uh, it was winter. They were, I still remember they were sort of dark emerald greeny kind of boots. Um, and I was like, yes, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready for filming. And um, lo and behold, we get changed into these, you know, classic black kitchen trousers and white overalls over the top, which by the way, I hate, I don't know why we have to cook in whites all the time. There's a different story, however. And uh, I walked into the kitchen and I met Sean Rankin and he looked at my feet and said, that's an interesting choice of footwear. And um, I said, yeah, I love cooking in heels. I cook in heels all the time. What's wrong with my shoes? Which made him laugh. So that kind of broke the ice a little bit. And, um, after that, I think actually cooking in a Michelin star kitchen is not different to um, being on call when you're a doctor and managing unwell patients in a medical resus room. Um, it actually requires exactly the same skill set. So, you know, yes, I was fiddling with three pots at a time, but sometimes I've got to put, you know, a needle in one person and run a gas for another person and call the labs for another person and make sure someone else get oxygen at the same time. So weirdly, um, my training was such that I am being forced to be able to take care of three to four, five, six, even sometimes unwell patients in one go. And therefore, being in a kitchen and managing four or five plates at one time wasn't actually that um, difficult for me. And actually, in actual fact, it was quite exhilarating. Um, and I, I did see the high that you get um, in a Michelin star style kitchen. I can see uh, how the past is not very different to my career in medicine, um, which is perhaps a comparison which lots of other people were not able to draw, um, but that I could. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, incredible, incredible to think of it that way. But you know, life is all about transferable skills, isn't it? I think that came across on the show, you know, because you were always quite calm under pressure, um, especially in the, the later episodes. And funnily enough, talking about medical background with the episode where you were cooking on the set of Holby City and some of the others were really starting to crack and I think yeah I think that it was it was clear that you were quite calm and organized under pressure you were able to just keep focused on all those different things keep all those balls in the air so to speak yeah I mean Alex I mean if you for me um I think it's also very personality dependent. I am stressed. Um, I do go through the same emotions as other people, but I'm quite good at managing that and concealing it and then being able to channel it into a productive way of getting through the task at hand. Mm. So it's almost like having um, like quite a resilient and target driven approach to a problem. Um, so I might be stressed inside, but I wouldn't really let you see it because that's who I am. And that's who I've trained to be. So in, like in my day to day life, I'm a gastroenterologist. Now I've obviously gone further ahead in my career. And part of my job involves doing endoscopies for people who come in with life threatening bleeds. Um, so, you know, a gastroenterological hemorrhage, a GI hemorrhage, so ulcers and things that are bleeding. And I have to go in and stop the bleeding and clip vessels and put adrenaline in people and manage them when they're really, really sick. Um, so I can... I can put my emotions and my anxiety and stress aside and focus on a particular task. And then maybe, I think maybe some people thought that of that as a, you know, a very sort of stoic attitude to things. Uh, I'm not stoic. I have all the emotions, but I'm very good at being able to conceal them and do a job. Wow. I can't imagine. Um, 
I think I just stand around crying all the time. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, I'm not very good at doing that at all. I wear my, my heart on my sleeve, which is, is to my detriment sometimes, I think. But anyway, moving on, uh, I've got a couple more questions about MasterChef and then we're going to talk about your book. And I also have some questions from listeners. So I guess what I would quite like to know is is what standout there was from MasterChef. What was the highlight for you of, of the competition? Um, winning. Aside from winning. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to use that no, one. <laughs> that one. Um, highlight from MasterChef. Um, there was this really lovely day where um, – we had to cook for um, the critics, which included Jay Rayner and Tracy McLeod and William Sitwell and Amol Rajan. And I made this dish of uh, rose-scented chicken um, with a rose shorba and jeweled Persian rice. And uh, I thought, you know, I wanted to do something special. I think the brief was something that, you know, is close to you, a dish that's close to your heart or something like that. And I, 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 I knew I had faith in myself. I thought, you know, this is the dish that's going to wow judges. And in essence, it was like meatballs, rice and a sauce, uh, but really very much glorified with lots of layers of flavor and, you know, made really special. I did go in there sort of thinking, oh, I hope they like it. I hope they like it. I hope they like it. Please let them like it. Please let them like it. And, but, you know, you just doubt yourself because you think, you know, this is very me. And, you know, are they looking for, are they going to like me? Are they going to like something that comes from within me, from my culture, from my background, from the food that I like, my taste buds? You know, this is something that comes from my heart, this dish. Is this going to be something that you know, appeals to more people than just myself. And, you know, because food is so subjective, as we all know. Mm. And I was so delighted when I saw the footage back and they, and I actually saw the episode that they absolutely loved it. All, all of them loved it and they didn't have anything negative to say. And I it just felt that that was such an incredible gratification. Um, and it just gave me the confidence to say, actually, I can continue to stick to being who I am and celebrating the food I love. And I will go far in this competition. I don't have to be someone else. I can just be me. That must be a real confidence boost to have that that kind of that feeling from within and I know the episode you mean because as I mentioned earlier I just recently re-watched that series and I think Jay Rayner um says something like oh do we do we have to say something intelligent now or can I just make lots of of um yeah. <laughs> food enjoyment noises which is a really lovely thing for him to have said yeah, yeah really really memorable that really I think that sticks it really sticks in in my mind that I, it's, it's a lovely lovely compliment um for anything that you've cooked you know for people who are paid to be critical of food and say well you know actually can't be bothered to be critical it just tastes yeah, nice you know yeah so, yeah it's great it was lovely really really lovely but you know I have to say Alex that yes I did stick to making food that I uh, that represents me, my culture, my heritage. You know, what people don't know about me is when I was 14, I cooked my way on every weekend for fun through the Cordon Bleu cookbooks. So I have a basis in classical French cooking that I've been in a self-taught capacity, that is. And I know how to do lots of technical things, but I intentionally chose to cook food from my culture and heritage um, background to celebrate it. 
because that's what I love and that's who I am. And that's the food that's closest to my heart. But actually, when I won the competition, there was a huge, huge amount of backlash um, on social media because of that. Um, And I did not expect that. I don't think anybody expected that at the time. No, I, I didn't know about that. No. Yeah, there was a huge amount of backlash. I think a lot of people were very upset. They thought, you know, she can only cook a curry. That was a classic thing going round. And how could she win? Because, you know, everybody else can cook lots of different cuisines, but, you know, she can only cook a curry um, was mm. the classic thing. And at the time, you know, I stayed really, really quiet, didn't respond to anything. But there was just mounds and mounds of of abuse that came towards me. Um, I was trolled in a very, very spectacular way after winning MasterChef. That is terrible. It is terrible, but it's part, I I mean, it it is part and parcel of going on reality TV um, or a competition, but it was, a lot of it was completely unprecedented. And one example that I'll never, ever, ever forget, which really will always stick with me and is deeply upsetting was one very abusive um, and verging, not verging, actually racist comment towards the food I cook and who I am. Um, I sort of went on the Twitter profile because I was quite new to Twitter at the time. I only joined in 2017 because of MasterChef. I wasn't on social media otherwise. And I went on this person's profile and I thought, who on earth is this person commenting like this? And it was a primary school teacher. And honestly, (gasps) yeah, it was a primary school school teacher. And it was just like, I wish at the time that I'd done something about it. I think I was so flummoxed that I just sort of left it and moved on and it taught me a massive lesson about handling social media and you know what it means to be in the public eye and you know that there, there is there is this whole thing you know you win master chef it's a big thing for you but you know you're not necessarily the people's favorite um or everybody's favorite obviously some people will, will want you to win but it's it's a subject food is subjective so therefore the person you want to win the competition is going to be subjective as well and we all know that um but there there is a line where i think people don't understand or I realize that people don't really understand the nuances of the food of my culture because simply saying that the food that I cooked was all a curry and not understanding you know the world of spices and the sensitivity um, of of cooking with spice is I think grossly negligent from a culinary standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I actually cooked from North African through the Middle East to South Asian, Kashmiri, Indian food, which is a huge geographical territory. Um, if you think about it, it's almost spanning from one side of the world to the other. Um, so, I never, ever thought that I would be in this position being questioned about the variety of cuisine that I was cooking. So, yeah, it was an eye-opening experience for me and one that I think shows how much more education on as a whole we need about, you know, what constitutes a curry Mm. um, and what what doesn't, um, as the case may be. I just, I'm really sorry that that happened to you because... You know, obviously, as a as a viewer, you watch the series, you see who won. Oh, fantastic! And then you might see that person cooking somewhere else, or, for example, in in your case, releasing a book. But you never think about the fact that there's always someone out there that is just mean 
And I'm really sorry that happened. And, and that's Twitter all over. It's social media. It's like a double-edged sword, isn't it? You, It's great in one sense. You get to meet people and see people. And that's how I found you um, on Instagram, seeing your, your live cook-alongs and, and, and the food that you post. But then you just get some really awful people. Oh, horrible. It's a double-edged, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Absolutely. I have to say now, um, I feel comfortable talking about it now, whereas I didn't really know how to talk about it because I haven't quite processed exactly what had happened in the beginning, at least. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's important as a South Asian woman in the public eye to stand up for myself um, and be able to say, you know, actually, it's not okay to talk to me like this. And and, and actually, it doesn't really happen anymore, if I'm being honest. It was just a very short-lived period of time where this, this did take place. But, you know, I think you grow stronger from it and, and move forward. And and I, I have to admit, I would never, ever take back anything that I did or take back anything that I cooked Um and act or behave in a different way on television. I was always myself, um, you know, and I think I behaved completely appropriately. Um, so, you know, uh, haters will hate. And, uh, and I think you and I both know, and the reason why we're here talking is because we both enjoy social media and can see the positives that it brings and how it connects people. And this podcast is a huge celebration of that fact, really, about how food brings us all together. So mm. um, I think, you know, let's just see the positives. That's my sort of stance on it now. Definitely. I totally agree. Right. Are you ready for some listener questions? Ready. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I try and do this for most of my guests, but I do sometimes forget. So I'm a little bit um, naughty, but I put a, a post up on Instagram saying that you were going to be coming on the show and some people asked some questions. We don't have time for all of them. So I just picked three. So First of all, we have Emma in Glasgow, and she's been reading about microbiomes and asks if you have any advice on how to keep up the good ones whilst eating tasty food. And I would like to add, what on earth are microbiomes? Okay, so um, essentially, um, microbiome is um, an interesting concept. It's not; it's a reality rather than concept. Actually, basically, um, in your gut, you are hosting trillions and trillions and trillions of other organisms. So, if you count them by number, they outnumber the number of cells in your human body. They weigh about two kilograms if you measured all of them. Wow! And they are a part of you. Yeah, they're not you. They don't contain your genes. Um, they are sort of a, a variety of different bacteria. Um, you know, fungi, um, small organisms that all just live inside you. And they have an evolutionary purpose there. They exist because they help you digest your food, for example, fibers, etc. Um, but increasingly, what we're finding is that um, the composition of those bugs in your gut is influenced by the food you eat. And that in turn, uh, the food you eat can improve the quality of those microorganisms that exist inside your gut. And you can actually influence lots of different things in your body, like to do with your health, for example, um, the way that you absorb foods and the sugar spikes that you get and um, inflammation and even mood, etc. So it really has vast ranging consequences as we're finding out now for our health. And the idea really is that, you know, when we eat, 
we cult, what not only are we sort of trying to feed ourselves, our, our body cells, but you're also trying to uh, cultivate a healthy environment inside deep in the recesses of your colon, essentially. Um, so there is a whole host of food that we know is associated with improving the health of all these bugs that live inside you. Um, and broadly speaking, broadly speaking, you can classify them into prebiotics and probiotics. Ah, okay. So I have heard of those. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, which is where I think most people's knowledge comes in. So prebiotics is lots of sort of, you know, cabbages, cruciferous vegetables, um, broccoli, for example, and artichokes and chicory and, you know, lots of, you know, tomatoes, onions, not fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, all those sorts of things will help cultivate uh, a good environment inside. And those really... A bit like, you know, the miracle go or the fertilizer that you can feed your gut bugs. And then the probiotics are essentially supplemental good gut bugs that you can give yourself. So, for example, if you have a live yogurt that's got lots of beautiful, delicious bugs inside there, um, which will eventually find their way into your colon and can help those communities inside thrive, or so the theory suggests. And there's other things like sauerkraut um, and fermented foods like um, kimchi etc which all play a role in trying to give you the good bugs that you need now the trouble is that the question asks you know uh, should i be eating to improve my microbiome well yes um it is really important and i am going to be talking and writing a lot more about this in the future hint 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 <laughs> a lot of the research um and a lot of the things that you read on social media are gross gross oversimplifications and also massively overstating the benefits and that aren't backed by science Overall, if we're just limiting this to a, a short discussion, I would say that what's really important to improve your gut health is to um, recognize that diversity of food in your diet is really important. So lots of different fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, etc. And a huge variety of them as much as you possibly can over the course of the weeks and months and years will improve things long term for you. Um, a degree of fermented food probably confers some benefit fit but we don't know exactly how much that is and we all vary human to human so saying that you and I Alex would have the same response to eating the same diet is not true we might be completely different so it's a really interesting uh, area one that I'm very passionate about in my dual role as a gastroenterologist and a chef um, and I think you know it really gut health and improving your gut health and improving your microbiome is essentially the future um so lots will come up in this in the next decade. And I think the way we approach healthy eating is going to change massively going forward. Great. Really, really interesting, actually. And because I wasn't really aware of microbiomes, but I, as soon as you started talking about probiotics and things like that, then suddenly I, I knew what you were talking about. And actually that fits really nicely into our next question, which is from Katie in Bath. And she asks, as a gastroenterologist, <laughs> Katie and Bath, and she asks, as a gastroenterologist, how important is it to you that your recipes that you create are good for your gut? Um, how important is it for me that my recipes are good for the gut? I don't know. I think it's an interesting one. 
You see, we cook for various different reasons. I cook because sometimes I want to connect with an emotion, like, you know, it's a festival and I cook something that my mum made when I was a child. I cook because I want to eat a delicious steak one day. Like I'm just, you know, really, really fancy it and I really want that indulgence. Um, I cook because as an activity, I find cooking uplifting and it lifts my spirits. I cook because I want to feed nutritious meals to my family and I do cook sometimes because, and often actually, because I want to optimize gut health. But I don't try and think of these things all in separate boxes. I try to think of them all as, you know, trying to create deliciousness and digestive health and happiness um, through the lens of a food lover. So I think it's really interesting because the question itself sort of divides um, people into two camps, those eating for pleasure and indulgence versus those eating to promote their gut health. Whereas actual fact, everything lies within a continuum or should, in my opinion, lie within a continuum, whereas whereby everything is the same. So, you know, you should be able to reconcile the fact that sometimes you want to eat a piece of cake um, with the fact that generally speaking, lots of fruit and veg is good for you in your diet. And that's my that's my personal view viewpoint. But I do recognize that in a climate where you have an excess amount of food choice available mm. to you it, and, you know, lots of people are sort of typecasting people into, you know, are you a plant based eater? Are you a non plant based eater? Are you um, someone who cooks for pleasure? Are you someone who, um, you know, cooks for health? I, I can recognize why people think that it should be one or the other. But in actual fact, you know, I think holistic eating and eating mindfully is all about being able to achieve a balance in your life whereby you can eat healthy, gut-friendly meals, as well as eating a slice of cake or a piece of steak. It's all about moderation, although that's not easy to achieve. I do try. I think um, my partner's actually making banana bread downstairs as we speak. So <laughs> talking of that slice of cake, that's uh, what I'll be doing when we finish recording. So I'm aware that we haven't talked very much about your cookbook. And um, I think that this episode could be three or four hours long if we let it. So <laughs> my next question um, links very nicely to your book and I think we'll allow us to talk about it in a little bit more detail. So KV in Wales wants to know how Mughal cuisine has influenced and changed wider Indian cuisine. I feel like that's a big question. Um, it is a big question. Um, as you know, my, my cookbook, Kuzana, is um, a cookbook about Indo-Persian cuisine influenced by the Mughal Empire. And as an introduction, the Mughals were essentially the emperors um, who ruled over, they came from Central Asia, so Samarkand area, through Afghanistan into what is now Pakistan. Pakistan um, and India, northern India, and they made their way and conquered through northern India towards the south of India and all the way into sort of the Deccan Sultanate. So they they were really um, conquered a huge, huge, huge amount of territory. Um, this is not just one emperor; it's you know successive emperors. Uh, they were Muslim, and they uh, basically took the cuisine of all of these different lands, and they assimilated it and took the best bits on board, and decided that they were sort of food gypsies in a way, and they would procure foods from all manner of different places and cook with them, and they were. If there was anybody 
as an emperor or um, as a group of emperors who was going to be classified as foodie, it was the Mughals. So have they had an influence on the cuisine of the area? Absolutely, yes, without a shadow of a doubt. And if you look at the main dishes now that we eat and associate with the regions of South Asia, like a rogan josh, which is a rogenju, or a biryani, or a palau, um, or often the kebabs, etc., all of those have roots in Mughal cuisine. And historically, people think of Mughal cuisine as just being sort of very rich because they were emperors. So, yes, you know, they loved cooking with nuts and oil and cream and butter and all the all the good things in life. All the yummy things. Um, they had a governmental department, which was allocated just to the procurement of their food. Um, their kitchens were overseen by a doctor. Uh, because they, you know, they valued medicinal properties of food. I mean, they were just the most incredible foodies you can imagine. I mean, there was one emperor called Barber, who was the first Mughal emperor, in fact. And when he moved from Samarkand um, into India, <laughs> you wouldn't believe he basically missed the fruit of Samarkand so much that he ordered for a watermelon from Samarkand to make its way to him by a, a series of runners. And it, the, <laughs> wow. watermelon, yeah, yeah, the watermelon arrived and this emperor who has no hesitation in killing people to acquire territory cried when the watermelon from Samarkand touched his lips. Um, so, you know, you can, say, you can see how foodie these people are. One of the emperors was so impassioned and in love with mangoes that he just absolutely adored eating mangoes all the time, including in a pickle, until he actually got into a proper ruckus with one of his um, doctor advisors who advised him that eating so much mango pickle um, was going to actually be bad for his health. <laughs> You know, they, it's it's crazy. They um they fed their their poultry rose water and pearls and nutmeg um so as to imbue all of the flesh of the meat that was being reared for them um with as much flavor as possible. They grew their own roses to make rose water. They transported flowers varieties from Central Asia to cultivate them in India. You know, they were incredibly brutal and tender at the same time. These are the emperors who built the Taj Mahal. Um, so if you ever went to a feast in their home, you can quite imagine what it would be like. Huge influence on the cuisine of the region, undeniably. But obviously things have evolved over time. And I don't think that the Mughals would have been averse to that because they were quite experimental with their cuisine as well. So, you know, with time, we have changed the way they cooked. And I remember going back to the archives and looking at all of the recipes that they would make. And, you know, in actual fact, there was recipes where they used like tons and tons of cashews. And I remember going and doing an Ocado shop and it came to like 60 pounds if I cooked with the same amount of cashews as they were cooking in their recipe. And I was like, right. Right. Nobody is going to cook a recipe for £60 in this day and age. I've got to work out a way of reducing the cashews and you know, still making this taste delicious, um, which is quite possible. Um, but, you know, you, you catch my drift. It was opulence um, at a different level. Was writing, I guess this is a twofolded question. So was writing a cookbook something you'd always wanted to do? And was it always apparent to you that this was what you would write about? 
I think writing a cookbook is something I had always wanted to do. I think I put it completely to the back of my mind when I um, embarked on my medical career because, you know, you just become so focused in what you're doing. And then MasterChef obviously reignited that passion. I knew I wanted to write about South Asian cuisine. And I've got so much more I want to write about. I think I really honestly feel that writing about Indo-Persian cuisine is just a starting point for me. I mean, growing up, we traveled a lot. My father took us around to various, um, you know, uh, historical monuments and places of interest to the Mughal, of, which were of relevance to the Mughal Empire. And therefore, I had this basis within me. And it was an excellent starting point And you know, I, I, it flowed out of me. Writing the book wasn't hard for me because I, I already had these ideas. I had it all stewing inside me. I just had to get it down onto paper and you know, put the recipes down in, with quantities. But it wasn't intrinsically difficult for me. I want to write about the food of Pakistan, which is where my family's from. I have Kashmiri roots as well. I want to write about the cuisine of Kashmir, which people have no idea about, which is a completely uncelebrated cuisine that the world doesn't know about. You know, I just have so, so many ideas about things that I want to do um, and food that I want to write about. So it was, for me, yes, a quite a natural transition to write about the Mughal Empire. Although, you know, interestingly, people probably consider it quite niche in a way because, you know, we're not talking about something that's so broad spectrum, are we? It's it's the food of the Mughal Empire is is not like writing about, I don't know, food... Uh, in a roasting tin or food that I could do when I come home from work or, you know, uh, mums feeding children or something that's inherently more generic. Uh, So it's specific, but it's also wonderful. I think that's why the book works. And, And I've noticed over the last year, couple of years that increasingly the cookbooks that I'm buying and and believe me I buy a lot (laughs) um, (laughs) are quite niche Mimi Ai's um, Mandalay, which is Burmese cooking, is very mm-hmm. specific, a very sli- a slice of cuisine from where she grew up and where her family's from. I'm trying to think of other books that are similar. Um, Samarkand by Caroline Eden uh, as well is another one where it's a very specific cuisine that is covered in that book. And actually, for people who are amateur home cooks who want to experiment and try something different. I think those books have so much more to give than a collection of slow cooker recipes or a collection of, I don't know, 30 minute recipes that are all over the place. But I mean, I recently purchased a copy of your book and I haven't had a chance to cook anything in it yet, but everything looks like a celebration. Everything looks fantastic. And yeah, they're not quick some of them maybe, but a lot of them aren't quick recipes. But I think that as a as a weekend treat, I'm really looking forward to making something soon. Oh, thank you, Alex. I mean, I, I'm chuffed to bits that you would um, cook from it and very excited that you, you like um, the recipes as well. I think you're right. I mean, it's not... It's not intended to be short recipes. And and yes, I think there is an appetite in people to know about specific cultures and cuisines. But you've got to remember that there's this whole dichotomy that exists between people who are collecting cookbooks because they are interested in specific cuisines and cultures and want to educate themselves about something that they know nothing about and want to diversify their their palate, their kitchen, their, the, what they're cooking, or just just have a general interest in culture through the lens of food, um, versus you know the appetite for 
books that are a bit more generic, um, but actually people use and buy them a lot as well. So, you know, for people like me, it's always difficult um, finding that balance between writing something that you feel has the ability to appeal to the mass market versus writing books which appeal to cookbook lovers. And Khazana is definitely a book for cookbook lovers. Mm. Um, yes, there are recipes in there which will appeal to many people. And uh, believe me, to this day, I feel really, really chuffed to bits that people send me pictures of the food that they're making again and again and again. And there is no bigger compliment for um, a cookbook author and chef than for people to cook their recipes. But, you know, it's not designed to be the sort of book that people cook from day in, day out. And I, I mean, I, I won't lie, I don't cook my recipes from Kazana every day, um, but I do cook from them regularly, but not every single day. So um, as a cookery author, I think you do face this dichotomy. Does one take a more generic route and write something that you know will appeal to the mass market? Or do you actually take a step back and say, this is me, this is my culture, this is my route, you know, I think a subset of people will find what I write interesting, but it's never going to be as generic and broadly uh, taken up as uh, as another book, which has a more broader and wider appeal. And I hope that in time, actually, we get to a point where these books, which celebrate you know people's specific cultures, like Mandalay, like Fire Islands mm-hmm. by Eleanor Ford, by like Samarkand. These are some of my favorite books, by the way, of all time. I mean, they are, they're just brilliant, brilliant books written by people who are absolute experts in their fields. Olia Hercules' books, you know, amazing um, exploration of Ukrainian food. I mean, it's just, just absolutely brilliant. Um, And you can't really get more of an insight into people's backgrounds until you really get into the depth of these books and appreciate their authenticity towards their subject. So yeah, all power to these people, hey? That's what I say. All, all the cookbook authors. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, and actually, um, Eleanor Ford was the co-author on Samarkand. She I should was, have said yeah. that. And is a past guest on this podcast. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, absolutely fascinating as we head towards the end of the pod, you mentioned earlier, hint, hint, um, and it sounded like you had something to mm. tell us. So what have you got coming up? What's what's next for you? Well, Alex, I mean, what I would say is that there is plenty of big announcements about my future projects coming up in the very near future. Um, so please, for yourself and everybody else who's listening to this podcast, do uh, keep an eye out. I will be sharing lots of things with you. Um, what I would say is that, yes, I am continuing to write. I have been writing throughout this lockdown period. And uh, it's all culminated in something very beautiful, um, which does combine my career as a gastroenterologist with my career as a chef and I'm going to leave the mystery at that for now (laughs) that sounds great okay something to look forward to then absolutely fantastic it has been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I'm really really impressed as I said all the way through this episode at the fact that you are a full-time doctor you are doing all these amazing things with food and of course that you won MasterChef which is just amazing and as soon as I put the virtual phone down I'm going to run downstairs get a cup of tea and watch your final episode I think so thank you so much Sally Her, for joining me today it's been fab 
Oh, thank you, Alex. It's been lovely. Such a wonderful. I, I mean, I could chat food forever, as you as you know now. <laughs> oh, You're in the right place. <laughs> exactly. Enjoy your cup of tea. Thank you. Okay, I shall speak to you soon. Bye. Mm-hmm.